Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, a podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we speak with participants in the COVID Realities Research Project. The project began in April 2020, just after the COVID-19 pandemic hit and the UK went into lockdown. The research works with people on low income to understand what it's like to live on little during a pandemic and at a time when normal life comes to hold. Parents and carers were asked to get involved and to document their everyday realities through diary entries and virtual discussion groups. Hundreds of people got involved and brought to light the challenges of living on a low income when it isn't possible to go into work, when children have to learn from home and when you're not allowed to meet socially. Findings have been widely reported in the media, especially in relation to the temporary increase in benefit payments. Today, I speak with one of the researchers on the project, Katie, and two research participants, Caroline and Brian. Caroline is a single mother working as a self-employed childminder and living in Northern Ireland. Brian lives in North London with his teenage daughter and he receives disability benefits. Together we talk about what life was like at the time of the strongest restrictions, what the future holds and what government should do to make a difference. To kick off our conversation, I ask Caroline and Brian what life was like when the pandemic hit and how they were affected. I was self-employed for many, many years and just before COVID hit, um, I actually went into employment and I lost that job in August last year. So I kind of slipped back into the previous self-employment um, as a registered chatminder. And it's life on low income, it's it's life on an insecure income um, because universal credit itself is not secure. You know, it doesn't provide, you know, security um, because I'm self-employed, my wages go up and down. So my income, you know, the level of support I get goes up and down, you know, and you never know when it comes in. Yeah. So you just, you can't plan, you can't budget. It's, it's more or less just as and when, and it's just grasping at things all the time. Yeah, when um, the first lockdown first started, I was a single parent father with a teenage daughter. I was struggling then, so I've been a- unable to work for a few years because of health issues after my previous partner left the home because um, she was working full-time that was our main income all I had coming in for myself was ESA that was all I was left with I couldn't claim anything else for my daughter at all apart from the standard 20 pound a week child benefit so it hit quite hard because we didn't even have internet at home when the pandemic started so that was sort of first expense getting a laptop in both their introductions, we hear Caroline and Brian talk about support they receive from the government. Caroline talks about universal credit, which refer to benefit payments for those who are on a low income, out of work or unable to work. It replaces six benefits that were previously in place. One of these is the Employment and Support Allowance, ESA, which is the benefit that Brian is still receiving. Universal credit replaces the old benefits, but is being rolled out gradually across the country. I asked Caroline if she can tell us a bit more about the support that she receives. It was very hard to find. Obviously, I'm not in Britain. I'm over here in Northern Ireland, so we're kind of a devolved government where government kind of had discretionary support. As I always say, it's 
it's as discretionary as the person that's making that decision on the end of the phone, you know, and it kind of felt like an Oliver Twist scenario at times where you're having to beg, you know, and you have to justify your pennies. They were more concerned about the money that came in rather than the money came out. So your rent was never included in expenses and stuff like that. It was more, well, we really want to give you a loan. And it was like, no, well, I don't really want a loan because I accrued debt from moving on to universal credit from working tax credits. And that was being already taken away from my payments. Our local council done food bank donations, you know, where they would deliver a food parcel every two to three weeks. And I was grateful for it, but it was very processed. It was all processed food. It was white pasta. It was it was stuff we wouldn't normally eat in the house, you know, because we would normally have eaten fresh fruit and vegetables and, you know, cooked good meals. But we had to resort to tins, basically tins of soup and stuff. Convenient food, but it's not a healthy, sustainable diet for young children. But it kept us going. Brian equally struggled to get the help he needed. Um, I didn't get any direct help from the government because I was just left on the, I think it's ESA that I was receiving. But apart from that, um, my daughter contacted um, a social group that she goes to and they provided us a food bank for a few months to help us get through while we sorted ourselves out with getting connected to the internet and things. But I didn't even realise there were things like that available before. It was my daughter that sorted that out. And she was only, what, 14 at the time. It is now December 2021 and we've come a long way since the start of the pandemic last year. I asked Caroline and Brian whether things have changed, whether things are looking better. Not for people on a low income, sort of, nothing seems to have changed. They talk about a lot about what changes that need to be made but the government never gives any money towards it or for us to sort any of these problems out. I'm still on legacy benefits and it hasn't been increased for over five years now not even by the rate of inflation but bills are going up through the roof and you've just got to constantly keep cutting back to make the money last that you get. I would really like to see a change in attitudes you know towards people on benefits you know there's this awful attitude of you're just scroungers, you just don't work, go and get a better job. It's, it's awful, it's demeaning and it devalues our children within society as well. Because I live in a rural area, um, my electric has went up £15 a month already. And it's, it's just unsustainable. I'm at a stage where I am actually thinking, am I actually better off not working? Because I'm killing myself working 40 hours a week and I don't earn the minimum wage. It's just keep pressure on me and I think I'd be better off not working potentially and just seeing what support I can get for not working. But I don't want to not work because I've worked all my life, you know, and that's what the benefit system is. It's like you feel like you're trapped in a hole and you're always trying to claw yourself out of it. I asked Brian and Caroline how it's possible that in a rich country like the UK with an extensive welfare system, people are struggling like they do. It's so hard to find out what help is available and what you're entitled to claim for and where you can go about getting help. So like I say, I did work full-time from when I left school and sort of a few years ago when I was involved in an accident and I've been unable to work since. But 
until a couple of years ago, I had a partner that did work full-time. So although I got disability benefits, she had a full-time income coming in. But once she left the family home, that stopped. And I just couldn't find any help or advice on how to go about finding money to feed my daughter and keep her warm and supply school uniforms and things. People do say we live in a rich country, but there's a lot of millions of people that just haven't got enough money for basic needs, like food and sort of heating and school uniforms, things like that. Katie, a researcher in the COVID Realities Research Programme, talks about how the issue of gaps in the welfare system was an emerging theme throughout the research. You know, when, when we're talking about a welfare system, we're talking about a safety net that should be there for people. There's lots of people who who aren't able to work for different reasons, you know, because of health concerns, because they may be a carer for somebody or, or they may be a parent with young children as well. And so what we've got at the moment, and Brian had sort of mentioned earlier, you know, we've got a system where the money that's provided by the benefit system has not kept pace with living standards for quite a few years now. And so that fundamentally is inadequate for people to live on. And I think that's been made worse by the pandemic as well. So yes, I I think we probably do have a situation where we do have these kind of pockets of wealth and any one of us could need that safety net at any time. And and for anybody who has needed that safety net, it's not there anymore or, or, you know, there's there's gaps in it. I think that's a real big thing that's come out of the COVID Realities Project is is that we need to make changes to that safety net for people um, going forwards, definitely. The fact that many jobs don't pay enough for people to live on and that the welfare benefits don't provide adequate support means that many people struggle and face difficult decisions. Both Brian and Caroline have to make tough choices about what to spend their money on and have to choose between heating, food or school uniforms. Uh, Yeah, I very rarely use the heating now. Sometimes my daughter's absolutely freezing and begging me to put the heating on, but I just can't afford to. It's just too expensive. Constantly trying to think of whether you really need to buy something or whether you can do without it and looking around the shops for special offers and things and so you can sort of take advantage of that and save a few few pence here and there. But it's a real struggle to live when you are on a low income in this country, despite what a lot of people think. A lot of people can't manage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I obviously we being where I am, we don't have gas, so you know our heating is solely oil heating. So for me to order oil, I need at least one hundred pound to order oil. That just isn't going to happen anytime soon, you know. So the oil is rationed. I am using my open fire. It's all I have. Thankfully, there is a back boiler on it, so it does heat the house. But again, the sticks cost money. You know, and it's, it's, I'm quite aware of the environment, so I know it's not something that's sustainable, but it's all I have. This cycle of hardship and the lack of support to get out of it also leads to a lot of frustration. Caroline mentions the media and government and the role they play in creating and perpetuating the narrative that people on low incomes only have themselves to blame. She is frustrated with the fact that we live in a country where people on low incomes literally have to beg for food. I think the media has a big part to play in all of this as well, because portraying people as being lazy, um, our government as well, you know, and the words they use when they talk about people on low income. There's just sometimes I have a fire in me, you know, and I want to fight back. 
and there's days where it's just like I'm just too tired you know and you kind of feel like what's the point are we ever going to be actually taken seriously I have spoke at the select committee you know in Westminster through COVID realities and stuff we were listened to but I would like to see more action coming from them kind of meetings you know it feels sometimes when you do all these strategic plans and we get all these different implementations but nothing has ever actually followed through and it sometimes feels like it's all just white noise even the celebration of food banks they're a lesser evil they're a necessary evil but why do we have people that need to go to a food bank has our society got that inhumane that we think it's okay for people to have to go and beg for food people should be able to live a life and see a value in that life people in low income have a desire to want better for their children and themselves but many many of us struggle to attain to that because we're stuck in that circle of being devalued and you know undermined by the system and it just feels like it's a never-going circle and it's how how do you break that circle and I feel like it needs to come from our politicians and our media and how they report things because when you see things reported and it kind of feels like the majority of the report has been omitted, it just feels wrong. Brian shares the frustration about how people on low incomes are portrayed and the suggestion that it's their attitudes about work or about wanting to do better that holds them back. Yeah, I mean, I don't read a lot of newspapers and things, but you get all these programmes on TV, Benefit mm. Street and things, and it puts everybody in the same boat, and they do make it look as though you're just out to get money for nothing and get whatever you can from the government. It's not the attitude of a majority of people that are on a low income. Most of us want to do something with our lives and generally support our children so they can grow up and make a difference to themselves and hopefully other people in the community. My daughter is quite intelligent, but I think she could go a lot further if she could get more help and sort of do a bit more in after-school clubs and things. It's just not available for her to do, because we can't afford it. Hopefully she will go on to do something good and positive with her life. The language around people on low incomes, as well as the support provided through welfare or social security systems in the UK, needs to change. This is an issue that came out really strongly in the COVID realities research. As Katie points out, it's vital that people on low incomes are part of the research on their lives, as well as the policy decisions that shape their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that, um, the language around people living on low incomes, definitely that's, that's a big sort of focus of what needs to change. But, you know, also really listening to people's experiences, you know, um, and that, that applies to policymakers, but also to the public more broadly, you know, so really taking the time and hopefully projects like COVID realities and, and others that are similar will help with this, but really trying to understand the reasons why someone might be on a low income, what, it, what it's like to live on a low income, when all you can think about is that day to day, just just surviving, just getting through the day, then, you know, it really is hard to think about anything else. It really is hard to think about what you might do next or think about pursuing opportunities or other things that you might want to do because you've got to focus on 
on getting through the day, really. We saw that across the diary entries, in particular over time, in terms of people's mental health. So that stress that people um, have experienced, but also the relentlessness of that, really, that chronic stress all the time. You know, what's come out of the groups is actually if we did make some of these changes to the social security system and, and make sure that people have enough money to live on and things like that, then that will go a long way to improving people's mental health. And, you know, thinking about this in a wider sense could actually help to prevent some mental health problems from starting in the first place. One of the key things really is making sure that people with direct experience are involved in that process of making policies and and how the policies are implemented as well. If we take like the five week wait for universal credit as an example, people who started a claim for universal credit and have been through that five week wait could have given, you know, lots of advice and input on the fact that that's actually going to be really difficult. Actually, by talking to people who have used that system, we could make that system a lot better uh, for the people using it. And this was one of the purposes of the COVID Realities programme. It aimed to document people's experiences during the difficult time of the pandemic, but also to use those experiences to understand what could be done better and to advocate for change. Brian and Caroline reflect on how useful it was for them personally to be part of the COVID Realities programme. By going onto the internet and trying to check what help there was available, I came across the COVID realities. I found that that really helped to be able to anonymously put down what I was feeling and what I was going through at the time. Just about sort of um, daily issues, really. Sometimes a bill would come in that you're just not expecting. And it's, it's nice just to be able to write down what you're feeling. And Because I had very few other people to talk to, so it's nice to get it off your chest and then when you see what other people have written, you know that you're not the only person in that situation. So I felt totally useless as a father not being able to support my daughter and keep her warm at home. It wasn't easy at all. Just by pure chance, I came across COVID realities, you know, and I says, yeah, I want to get involved with this. I want to use my voice here and meet people that are, have the same lived experiences as me and get her voice out there. And I have enjoyed it. It's been it's been rewarding because it makes you feel valued, you know, when you're when you're going and sitting in front of MPs and you're saying, this is what our life is, you know, this is what it's like. It's it's not all holidays and booze and cigarettes like it's portrayed in the media. It's hard, it's draining, and the toll that it takes on our lives is there every day. To end our conversation, I asked Brian and Caroline. What's next? What needs to happen so that people's lives, and especially those on low incomes, actually improve? I'd like people to have a different opinion of what they think of people on a low income, because we're not just all scroungers and looking to get something for nothing. We genuinely want to make a difference with our lives and improve our lives. But it's it's hard. It really is. Yeah, I just want people to treat us with a bit more respect, really, and understand that it's not always our fault that we're having to live the way we are. I would probably echo the same as Brian. The system treats us all the same, but we all have different individual circumstances. Stop squeezing households because it's not fair. We don't choose to be on benefits. We don't choose to be single parents. Marriages break down. Deaths in the family. These are not choices that people make to be on benefits. This is circumstances of life that hit somebody hard. It's really worrying for our children, for the future, as to what it's going to be like in 10 years for them. 
In other words, a clear plea for attitudes to people on low incomes to change and for social security and the welfare system to support people on low incomes better. COVID Realities is continuing its important work into 2022. The diaries and group discussions will keep going for people to get involved and share their experiences. Please visit the website of COVID Realities to find out more about the research. Thank you for listening to this 22nd episode of Poverty Unpacked. If you found this one interesting, please also check out some of our other episodes, such as on food banks in the UK and social protection in response to COVID. We hope you'll join us again next time.